Right, yeah, I am mic'd up, great. Well, it's great to be back, uh, it's been a long time, and uh, I didn't realise how long it was. I saw Ali's kids and I thought, wow, they all look about a year older, which they probably are. But it's just that real jump, and it's also great to see new faces I've never seen, which shows the church obviously is moving on and new people are coming, so it's been really good. Things are going pretty well in the Scard, um, not without struggles like any church, any life, you know. Uh, it's hard at times, but we're seeing the church continue to grow New people coming in, people becoming Christians, so you can't really ask for much more. It's great when we see some of you pop over, um, and you're always welcome. You know, every alternate week, we're at four o'clock, like this afternoon, and, you know, we just love it when people from Sonor still pop in. Well, in Liscard, at the minute, we're doing a series on um, what the Bible says about everyday life, and uh, we've covered sort of parenting, or that's being done this afternoon, we've finance, money, just just the nitty-gritty of everyday life. Um, one of the subjects we've covered is work. Um, we're also doing family, relationships, all that sort of stuff. But today I really felt to, to bring a message on work. Um, and when I talk about work, I think I want to just define it really. It's, it's really any sort of effort, mental or physical. So, you know, office, factory, raising kids, whatever. Any effort of a mental or physical nature which... Um, is designed to achieve some sort of goal with that broad definition of work. And um, there was a novel written in the 19th century in Germany uh, about a group of fraudsters and gamblers. In other words, people who were work-averse. Okay, They wanted the money, but they didn't want to work for it. Fraudsters and gamblers. Um, I want to tell you, by the way, no condemnation today. If you struggle with laziness, I used to be a lazy, dope-smoking 17-year-old who thought I was being really noble by going on the dole so that I could give a job to the people who really wanted to work. That's where I was from, okay? So, you know, I, I don't know anybody, if you struggle today and you know, and let this word just do what it does in you. You know, some of you will be people who struggle to rest. You're workaholics, you know. Some of you will be people who struggle to work. You're lazy, you know, there'll be all, everything in between. We're all on a journey, one stage of glory to the next. I don't want anybody to be condemned. I just want this word today to do what it does. You know, the Bible says you should know the truth and the truth will set you free. And um, we just want to see the word come. And if it, if it changes us, as we talked about realigning a computer this morning, if it just shifts us a little bit or a big amount, then praise God, let it do that. But this novel was written about a load of fraudsters and gamblers who didn't like work. They wanted to get rich, uh, quick scheme. And um, they learnt the value of work. They learnt, in a sense, that they were designed, it's in our DNA, to work. Now, some of you may go, I don't feel like that with my job. But nevertheless, they learnt the value of work in an honest day's pay for an honest day's um, labour. And the book was called, and you, some of you may begin to shudder now when I say what this book was called, but the book was called Arbeit macht frei. Work makes you free. The trouble is Hitler took the words of that novel, the title of that novel, put it above the labor camps of Auschwitz and twisted it like Hitler would twist everything, just like the devil twists everything, to make it a sick parody of what the noble thing about that book was saying. But if I had to title today's sermon, I would say there is an element in which work makes you free. I want to stress there's a lot of stuff about hard work today. And when I talk about hard work, I'm really not talking about workaholism. I'm really not talking about people who are so driven that they don't see their family, they don't see their kids, that a lot of people get caught up in the, the mess of that workaholism. I'm talking about just, just a decent day's graft. Well, 
I don't know about you, but I suspect every one of you, if I said, just think about your work, um, that you could be a student, you could be a housewife, you could be in the building site, whatever it is. But if I said to you, think about your work, what is the most rewarding thing about it? And what is the most uh, horrible thing about it? You'd probably easily say something. So me as a builder, I'd go, what do I love about it? I love just being able to make stuff. It's beautiful. And see it. It's rewarding. What do I hate about it? I come home, my body is wrecked. And my kids want to play football with me, and I cannot do it. My knees are going, my hips are going, I'm getting older. And that's the downside of it, okay? But you've probably got your own story about what you love about work and what you don't like. And when I say work, I also want to include your labor in the church, church ministry, okay? That is work too. It's hard work sometimes. As I thought about this message today, really, I, I, I believe that the main main thrust that God wants me to get across today is to encourage those of you who are experiencing the hard side of labor, whether that's in the church, in your ministry, in your family, raising kids, parenting, or in your workplace. The, the big thing for you at the minute is the cost side of it, the hard side of it. Here is some cinnamon synonyms in the... Um, Wikipedia for work. See if any of these resonate with you. This is synonyms for work, okay? Labor, toil, exertion, slog, drudgery, the sweat of one's brow, industry, service, grind, and graft. I think we all get some of that sometimes, don't we? We feel like our work, even if it's ministry in the church, is, is grind. It's graft. It's hard. And I want to encourage you, or I think God wants to, not me, but I think his word wants to really encourage you to help you make sense of your pains and your pleasures in your labors. Well, we're going to look at what the works, uh, the Bible says about work. We're going to do a lot in Genesis, and we're going to try and skim, can you believe it, in about 30 minutes through the Old Testament, and maybe even get into the New Testament and look at Jesus and Paul's work ethic too, okay? But we're going to start in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, another word for it is origin. So we're going right back. And I was amazed when I began to research work, where it starts. I mean, you go back to the first book, Genesis. In fact, you go back to the first chapter of the first book. In fact, you go to the first verse of the first chapter in the first book. Genesis 1-1. I don't know if these scriptures will come up, but great if they do. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Look at that. First chapter, you don't have to look far to find work in the Bible. In other words, God started making stuff. And it goes on, we sang, you know, today indescribable, he flung the stars into space. It says he made the stars. He made the stars, man. You know, I make a, I make a, I don't know, I make a wall and it's tough. He made stars, some of which are like, some of them I think are about a million times as big as earth or something and they're just out there somewhere. Millions of them. He made these stars and flung them, it says, or it says, set them in the expanse of the sky. He created the creatures of the sea. He separated light from dark. He did a lot of work. So much so, well, actually, I'll just go to Genesis 1.26. And part of his creation was, let us, let us make man, that's the Trinity speaking, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So just as we see in the very first verses of the Bible, God doing a lot of work. Immediately in the 26th verse, it's saying, let us make man in our image to rule. Now rule is work. 
Can you imagine being a passive ruler? Can you imagine running a country, sitting in your palace, smoking fags and watching Sky TV all day? The country will go into chaos. You cannot be a passive ruler. It requires effort. So right away, God is saying, I'm putting in a lot of effort. And what I want to encourage you on here is if you notice in that first bit of Genesis, often God stands back and goes, that's good. He's not being arrogant. He's not being proud. He's just going, that's good. I like that. Have you ever done that? Have you ever cleaned your car? Have you got young kids? It's filthy. And you get stuck in for an hour or two. You clean it out. You even do the windows. You do the whole lot. Do you stand back and permit yourself sometimes that sense of, I like that. That's good. It's because we're made in the image of God, you see. And just as God created earth and then stood back at various intervals and said, I'm pleased with that. It's in my DNA to work, to achieve something, to accomplish something. And I can admire what I've done. We shouldn't feel guilty as long as it doesn't step into pride, and just sometimes do stuff and look back and feel satisfied. That's what work is all about. It brings great reward to our soul. So we're made very much like God, it says. God worked hard. God was satisfied. We're designed to work hard and find satisfaction in our work. Moving on to Genesis 129, then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, And every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And here we see the whole principle of harvesting, farming, horticulture. And again, you see, it's all nice at this point, but still, you know, I could say it doesn't just drop out of the sky. It does actually fruit, but the point is you've still got to pick it up. There is still some effort involved even to harvest the beautiful things that God has made. Just skimming through Genesis, by the way, in Genesis 2 now. Verses 2 to 3. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. God rested. I I find this mind-blowing. Because we know we have a God who we can come to in prayer 24-7, seven days a week, three, six, five days a year. So we sort of go, God doesn't rest. Doesn't seem to rest. I've never felt him go, sorry, It's my day off today. Can't answer your prayer today. He's there the whole time. And yet, in this account, there's this sense in which God himself goes, I have grafted for six days, flinging stars into space, and I want to rest for a day. It's it's mysterious. Except for God is outside of time. And when we now come to him, you know, if he's in eternity, I, I don't know, it's cosmic. It's too far above my little head. But the point is, it's quite remarkable that God says, I want to rest. I've worked hard. And in doing so, he sets up a pattern for us. Six days you shall work and one day you shall rest. Well, just moving on again, he's had his rest. And we're still in Genesis 2, verse 8. He's on to the next thing. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. He says, on to his next job now. I'm going to make a little garden in Eden, in the east. And I'll put the man there. He hasn't just stopped. I've created the world. That's pretty amazing. I think I've done my job. He's on to the next job and he puts man in it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden, in verse 15, to what? Work it and take care of it. So Genesis 1 and 2, we've only got in the first two chapters of the Bible. and We are seeing 
this Protestant work ethic already. Sorry, I use that word loosely. I don't even know what the Protestant work ethic means. Other than Protestants, I think, uh, prided themselves on a bit of hard work in the 15th, 16th century. Verse 18 of chapter 2. The Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This is where women come in. And what's their job? To work, to help. Now, you ladies, don't at this point go down the road of, what, am I just his helper? Is that my insignificant little role in life? He gets the big jobs, and my job is just to come along and assist him to be his helper. Do you know what God has described us? God is our helper. You could look at it two ways. The fact is, you have the most amazing job. I know how, where I'd be without my wife as my helper. But you see, get beyond just this idea of help just for the minute because help is equated with God. God our helper. And if you're a lady, yes, there is a sense in which you will be your partner's helper. And I hope sometimes, men, we help our wives too. But the fact is, it doesn't just limit us necessarily to just following on the man's coattails and giving him a bit of help. You see, you can help in the home. You can help in, 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 in having a job and bringing in some in- income. It doesn't limit you to not work or anything like that. But you can, you can be a helper on a community level. You can be a community midwife as a lady. You're helping the whole community. You can be Angela Merkel helping run the whole country as a lady, okay? So don't get ladies, get bog- too bogged down in I'm just a man's helper. But nevertheless, a helper is a worker. Well, so far, there we are. What a platform, eh, of work. Just in the first two chapters of the Bible. And then we move, sadly, into Genesis 3. You see, up to now, it's been lovely. We just stroll along. We pick a bit of fruit. We admire the lovely garden. We do a little bit of rearranging. All very nice. No cost. Just loads of joy. Loads of reward. This is Eden. This is beautiful. And then God says, as you know, in Genesis 3, just don't eat from that tree. I just need to know you're not robots and the devil just needs to be shown that you follow me because you love me, not because you have to. One little test for you, do not eat of that tree. And as you know, uh, Eve first, Adam passively just watches his wife do it and then he has some too. And all of a sudden, this beautiful creation is ruined. Absolutely ruined. It'd be like you, you've just created this lovely home and then your five and six-year-olds just let loose with tins of paint. Whew, throw it all over. Burn something in the corner. Chris Packett said, the thing is a mess all of a sudden. And this is called the fall of man. So up to now, no pain. No hard graft. No sense of, oh, this work is so hard. And then the fall comes. And things shift in a second. Fear enters the world, they go, I'm hiding from God. People are hiding from God in this culture today, aren't they? Everywhere. People hiding from God. Shame enters. They feel so ashamed. They know they've done wrong. Deception enters. It was him. No, it was him. Blame shifting. Not my fault. All these things. The next chapter, depression and anxiety enter. The whole place is ruined. Well, let's have a look. Uh, the consequences. You see, God, it seems harsh, uh, but he, just like I would have with my children, if they tipped five liters of gloss paint all over my brand new floor or something, I would feel the need 
to give them some sort of punishment, some sort of discipline that might remind them, don't do that again. And I think God is just saying, there has to be, unfortunately, you've totally wrecked the world. I have to give you some consequences. And he says to this, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over you. So to the woman, um, my version just says, I'll greatly increase their pains in childbirth. Any woman had a baby without experiencing any pain. When I, when I asked that once before, somebody said, yeah, me, I had a cesarean, or yeah, me, I had an epidural. But apart from that, has anybody given birth and not gone, wow, this is hard? And that's just a start, isn't it? The cost, the first night, when you wake up in the middle of the night, this is painful. Raising children, okay? Many of you, you know it. That's your consequences, Eve, and all daughters of Eve, for you just going ahead and rebelling, you're going to have to now take a backseat a bit. You'll have your own pain and your desire will be for your husband, but he's going to be at work all the time and he's going to rule over you because you, you, ruled, you, know, you took the lead over him. To the man, he says, you passive man who just stood by and watched your wife ruin the world, he says, unto Adam, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hath eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, thou shalt not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Does it carry on there? Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And so he says to man, unfortunately from now on, work is going to have a lot of toil, a lot of sweat, a lot of graft, a lot of grind, a lot of drudgery, a lot of pain, and a lot of cost. Now, does your work in life now make sense? Do you suddenly go, I get it now. There's things I love about my job. There's things I love about raising my children. There's things I love about my church ministry. And there's things that are really just think about where God's speaking to you right now, in your ministry or in your, your home or in your... What, what's the hard stuff? Don't... You know, half the battle is the Christians. So sometimes we, we live in this delusion that it should be all so easy. So many people pull out of church ministry, pull out of their family, pull out of raising their children and head off with another woman or whatever it is because they're under an illusion that it should be just so easy. When the word of God itself says, there's great joy in me, but it's going to be tough. What did Jesus say? Nobody puts this one on their fridge, do they? In this world, you will have many troubles. No, we put, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, give you the hope, give you a future. That's our favorite fridge magnet. It's not, in this world, you will have many troubles. But half of us, just to be realigned, as James said earlier on, just to be realigned and go, ah, ah, it now makes sense. I shouldn't actually have this unrealistic expectation of my labor being simple and infinitely beautiful every day. And as soon as somebody comes in and makes my life a little bit harder, I'm going to quit. I've had enough. I can't take this. 
And so it is. There it is. This mixture of blessing and pain. And so if you're a cook, you may, you may produce some beautiful meal. You may enjoy doing it. We, we have church meals at four o'clock. You may do it. And if you get unthankfulness in the face of that, and and you've labored five hours, it hurts. It's painful. If you're a waiter, if, if you're a cook in a, in a restaurant and you, you really take pride in, in your stuff and people just, uh, yeah, it's fine. No gratefulness. Your kids, it hurts. So it makes sense of these struggles that we have in just about every walk of life. The reward when you're a student and you write an essay and you go, I really like that essay I've written. Not every essay I wrote, I felt that. But some you do. You just go, I've enjoyed researching that. I've enjoyed writing it. And I'm pleased. And so we have these mixtures of pleasure and pain in just about everything we do. Well, there you are. Let's move on. And so we have all that stuff in Genesis. And already I reckon some of you are just going, yeah, I, I, I get that. This helpful, not me, but the Bible to just shed light on some of our pleasures and our pains. And then, of course, it comes on to Exodus, the Ten Commandments, the law. We looked at the origins. We look at the law. And we know that, I think it's the fourth commandment. Six days you shall labor, and one day you shall rest. Mark Driscoll, I really like him. I know the guy had some hard times recently, but I really like the way he preaches. But he said, when I preached that, he said, I can split my congregation in two. Half of them need to hear, six days you shall labor. The other half need to hear, one day you shall rest. You see, half of us have a propensity to work too hard, to find our significance in it that should be found in God, to find everything that we're about. And we, are, we tend towards workaholism. We tend towards drivenness. And the other half of us tend towards laziness. And if that's you, you know, I want you to be encouraged. The Catholics talked about seven deadly sins, didn't they? Greed, lust, pride, sloth was one of them. Just be honest with yourself and go, yeah, that's, that's it. I was amazed the guy came up to me and, and just said to me the other day, you know, my big problem is I'm lazy. And you know, as it gets into Proverbs and it moves on and you see all that wisdom literature, it says things. This, this work ethic is rammed home again. And it says, you know, the desires of the diligent, the desires of those who, who, who think about it and realize the cost, who estimate the cost and they're, they're diligent in their work. They're careful to get it right. The desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. That'll be the same in your ministry as well. Uh, but the sluggard, the lazy person, craves and gets nothing. The reason he's got nothing is because he hasn't been prepared to put in the graft. And so, as you go through uh, Proverbs again, you see this huge amount of Scripture basically saying, get stuck in. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. The Bible says, well, again, I stress two things. I'm not... Uh, believing the word of God here says that we, we work so hard we're driven, that we don't have time for anybody else, that we work so hard we haven't got time for our relationship with God, is again one of the words that came forward was this morning. You know, there's a time, the most, most important thing to be diligent is, is in cultivating our relationship with God, in our prayer time, in our Bible study, in our fellowship. So, you know, don't please think I'm talking about just the word of God saying we've all just got to be working so flat out that we have no time for God and no time for anybody. Well, as we come on to the uh, last chapter of Proverbs and the wisdom literature, we see this woman of noble character, this wife of noble character. Now, I don't know what you feel about this, ladies, 
what you like, whether you go, oh no, not that lady again. Like we men, every time the scripture comes up that goes, men, love your wives as Jesus loved the church. And we all take a gulp, go a bit weak at the knees and go, okay, we'll do our best, Jesus, to love our wives just like you love the church. Going to the cross, totally selfless, dying for us, and, and, and just sacrificing yourself endlessly for us. Yeah, all us men go, yeah, that's easy. We'll do that one, Jesus. Well, this one is the one for the ladies that I think maybe some of you probably go, and I would encourage you, because she is remarkable. I've not really met many ladies like this. They do exist. But I want you to know that she's described as a woman who fears God at the end. And so, therefore, we need to take note of what she's like. A wife of noble character who can find she's worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for the tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. So right away, you've got a a property developer, a a, a vineyard developer, horticulturalist, farmer, cook, portions for her servants. It goes on. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor. I love this bit. And extends her hands to the needy. There's that sense of out of her wealth that she's created, she's able to bless other people. It's one of the most important things about wealth creation. It's not just that we can have new gold taps. It's about us saying, I'm now in a place to extend my arms to the poor and needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. I don't know the significance of scarlet other than it's not the most everyday material probably or the most everyday color, the cheapest, what's cheapest? White and black and gray probably, isn't it? She makes coverings for her bed and she is clothed in what fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She's a dealer in that and supplies merchants with sashes. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring, the, bring, bring her praise at the city gate. Amazing woman. I don't want people to be discouraged by that because she is quite remarkable. But if nothing else, you know, like I have to do, when Jesus says, love your wife, says Jesus, love the church, I go, well, I probably can't do all of that, but at least I can read something and go, yeah, I need to love my wife better that way. I set myself a new goal. And I think we can set ourselves some new goals depending on where we're at. Well, I don't want to go on any more in the Old Testament. We're done. Look at that in about 20 minutes. I'm just going to spend five minutes in the New Testament just to show that this whole thing doesn't go away. You know, the New Testament is funny, and People love to go, oh, that's Old Testament. As if uh, 
it's easier now. Not really at all. Yeah, well, what did Jesus do? He goes, you know, in the Old Testament, it says, um, do not murder. And then he goes uh, in the New Testament, but I tell you, if any of you got hatred in your heart, you're guilty of murder. He raises it up a notch. In the Old Testament, he says, uh, uh, do not commit adultery, one of the Ten Commandments. And then in the New Testament, he raises it up. He says, but if any of you have looked lustfully at another woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. The Old Testament doesn't make, uh, doesn't get easier in the New Testament. It actually gets raised up a notch. Why? Because in this new covenant, we have the Holy Spirit in us. They never had that. We're born again. We've got so much more power in us to rise above sin, the world, and the devil. And so Jesus just raises it up a notch and says, come on, you can go higher now. You can get closer in likeness to me in your ways and your heart and your attitude. And so as we go into the New Testament, nearly finished, we see Jesus. And we see this guy who, and have you ever wondered, who probably at 14 or 13, uh, under Jewish culture and tradition, starts work as a carpenter. You've got a carpenter or two here, haven't we? Um, we got loads in our church, by the way. Everybody seems to be a carpenter, or, or called Mark, or John and Becky. And so, you know, I, I wonder if we're going to have, like, sort of little mission-shaped communities. That's the John and Becky house group, the Marks, the carpenter house group. But we've just got these weird little clusters of things and people's names and all that sort of stuff. But we've got a lot of carpenters, and, and Jesus starts working at, at a young age, 13 or 14, and he does that for about 16, 17 years before he goes into three years of full-time ministry. Why do you think that is? Why do you think he spends 16 or 17 years doing the things that I do most days, and a lot of you do? And I'm pleased, by the way, that the pastor's here. John's done his time farming. Pete's been in insurance. I'm working part-time, you know. My dad, who, who didn't really, I'm digressing here, but my dad, who didn't really bring me up as a Christian, used to say to me this interesting thing. He used to say, I haven't got a lot of time for vicars who haven't done a day's work. He said, you know, those ones who go straight from college and they just become a vicar. He said, you, you show me one who's been in industry for 10 years or, you know, uh, been in the Navy. I'll, I'll take a lot more from him. Interesting thing. That's my dad. As a, I would say somebody who's outside the church. And so Jesus works for 16 years. Why does he do it? Well, I, it doesn't say in the Bible, so what I'm going to say to you now, you can shoot me down or whatever, say rubbish, but I believe some things that are principles in the Bible. And one of the things that work does is that it shapes our character more than anything. You've got to get there on time. You've got to submit to your boss. You've got a deadline. You've got to get it done. You've got to persevere. You've got to keep going even when you don't want to. You know the pressure. You know, I wonder if Jesus, you know, made, because his tables would have been perfect, I assume. You know, made a beautiful table for a customer, and he, would, he was delighted with it, and he, he goes off hoping that she'll be pleased, and she just goes, oh, yes, take it upstairs. Very nice. Well done. And, and then doesn't pay him. And he goes, come my money. Oh, next week. Come back next week. I wonder. I don't know. Did he just go through those normal hassles that each of us have? I believe he did. Shall I tell you why? Because the Bible says that we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He has been tempted in every way and yet was without sin. And I believe the reason he worked for 16 years is that there isn't one of us who can go, but Jesus, you don't know what it's like. When I get back after a hard day's graft, you don't know what it's like, Jesus. You don't know what it's like to work along someone who's pig ignorant all day to me. You don't know what it's like to just have the pressure of this deadline. You don't know what it's like. I believe he goes, I did it for 16 years. Can't you remember? That's one thought. 
In fact, that's my only thought on it. I believe that's why Jesus worked. And, uh, and it's great. What a savior we got, you know. There isn't one thing we go through in life, is there? Any form of abuse or whatever, he's been abused, he's been badly treated, he's been rejected, he's been slandered, he's been this, he's been that, he's been punched, he's been kicked, he's been spat on. It's just he's done it all and, and paved the way that we can go with him. Well, I wouldn't spend much time on Paul at all, but just to say that Paul, exactly the same. You look how hard Jesus ministered. The times he went out, and just was besieged by need. How hard he fasted for 40 days. How hard that was on the night he was betrayed to go through that, carry that across the agony. He was a hard worker. He went out sometimes to pray, it says. And all these people come and go, Jesus, help us, we're sick. And it says he just, okay, I was intending to go this way. Looks like my day's been interrupted. I'm going that way. And he would make up for it later on. But he knew the pressure, the onslaught. Paul exactly the same. He said, I have toiled day and night not to be a burden on any of you so that I could be a model for you by this hard work. So there we are. We're pretty much sure. I think we fairly comprehensively see from start to finish, the Bible encourages us towards hard work. It encourages us towards having our character formed through that hard work. Whether that hard work is in the home and raising children, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's in the church, all of it has this mixture of pleasure and pain. At the end, uh, I know you have a prayer ministry today. I want to encourage you this morning, particularly if you're somebody at the minute who your big battle at the moment is just the hardness of it. I mean, come for prayer if it's other things. Come for prayer if you know You know, I've never really valued work. I'm quite lazy. I don't like it. My whole goal in life is to to retire as soon as possible, to have as many Sabbaths per week as possible, to just do as little as I can. If that's you, just be honest with it and go, "I, I believe work might bring some freedom into my life. I might actually find growth in work, okay? But particularly, I felt God say today, you know, if you're weary, if you're discouraged, if you're really experiencing much more of the cost of work at the minute than the joy, then I would encourage you, uh, maybe during... Do we finish with a song or not? Do you normally do that, or do you just finish? Yeah, Yeah, maybe just finish with a song. Have one more chance to worship God. Thank him again for all his hard graft in creating the universe, creating us, and he is not sleeping now, is he? Every time we have need, we come to him, and he is there working hard on our behalf.